Father, we pray for the Pertzers and desire that you would continue to use them in their situation in Guatemala and use them mightily as you have already. Continue to protect them in a dangerous world and protect them spiritually as well, that they would uh, see your hand on their life and be confident that you are working amongst them and that you would keep them there for the full duration that you have designed. We pray this morning for ourselves that we would clear our minds and if there be any distraction or sin or anything that needs to be dealt with that we may do it now. And if sin is the issue that we would confess that to you, that we'd be in fellowship to maximize what you want to say to us from your word. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. In the book of Romans, as in any book that we would get into, the reason it's good to go sentence by sentence is if you think in terms in terms of the Bible study topics, not that topics are not good to do occasionally, but when you do it topically, oftentimes when you select a topic, you already have a theme in mind, you have certain things already in mind, and you don't know whether those themes are meeting needs. Now, a pastor tries to evaluate that, but even that, he doesn't know hearts. So when you do sentence by sentence, then when issues come up, then you deal with them, and you trust that the Holy Spirit as he wrote these books, and when you get to these areas, then those issues or topics or whatever can be dealt with in the context in which the passages fall. So even though the idea and the concept of faith is probably very familiar to all of you, I think there are things here that probably are at least good reminders think you're aware of probably all of the principles dealing with faith. So this passage basically gives us an example, and I think it touches on all of the important elements that make up the concept of faith. And at the same time, there are always believers that sometimes don't have a complete or sometimes have a distorted picture of any area, so it's good to go over them. So we're going to look at Romans 14 through 25, and we're looking at the little portion within that that deals with Abraham as an example of faith, written to a particular audience, a Roman audience that are believers. He's writing to believers. I've stressed that over and over. So believers in the first century, some of them died on that very spot on the slide there. It was a floor that existed, obviously, and it was a spectacle to bring believers before persecution, and some of them were martyred on that very spot. Anyway, we are looking at the provision of God's righteousness, recognizing that mankind is condemned, and there's no way of him getting out of that situation. So God must provide and Paul gives us a theological concept because he's writing to believers, justification. We commonly speak in terms of salvation. We're talking about the same thing, but we're defining it in a more legal sense in terms of God's justice. So it's like a supreme court of heaven and all stand condemned and just awaiting a final What's the word? Sentence. They're already sentenced, but a, a final, what's the word, Linda? No, the verdict has already been made, condemned. But I'm waiting for it to be executed. The execution, exactly. Good. So, God has made a provision where guilty people who are hopelessly in a situation they cannot change, that people may find justification, or we use the word acquittal. Not because anything they will do will accomplish it. God must do it from start to finish. And once he's done that, he declares us righteous. But before we're declared righteous, we must receive the first aspect of justification, the removal of the sin or the guilt. And once that is removed, then we have the positive of justification. So that's given to us in chapter 3, 21 through 5, 21. 
And the heart of the passage, in fact, the heart of the whole Bible, some scholars say, is chapter 3, 21 through 26. One complicated sentence that we broke down and spent plenty of time, what was it, six, seven weeks or so, talking about this concept that God has provided, the provision of justification. We've looked at the priority of justification, the following passage, 27 through 31, apart from works, on the basis of a law of faith, totally by grace. And we're in chapter 4 looking at the pattern, and the pattern is an Old Testament pattern. And eventually we'll get to chapter 5 where we have the profit from justification or the benefits of it. So we've been looking at the covenant of Abraham. This is the latter part of this pattern. First of all, Abraham is the example of justification by faith and faith alone. And also, Paul introduces the Abrahamic covenant, which is the most important aspect of the story of Abraham. And what is this all about? And basically, the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant that it does not depend in any way upon Abraham. But instead of focusing on the covenant, Paul focuses on what precedes the covenant, the promise. And the promise eventually is made into a covenant, probably because you might have this idea that a covenant is a contract, and that's true. And you might think that because it's a contract and there has to be parties, then both parties have to fulfill certain things. And if that's the case, then you might almost think in terms of what does Abraham have to do to fulfill the covenant. So he goes before the covenant and focuses on the promise, where Abraham has nothing to do with it. It's grace. It's by faith alone. So he emphasizes the promise aspect of the covenant. It's verse 13, 4.13. And the alternative to this promise is the system of works, the system of law, and they're antithetical. One cancels the other one out, particularly law nullifies grace. This is is text. So now he goes back to 16 and 17 after he's explained, and it's kind of a summary of what he's already been talking about. There's an assuring purpose, 16 and 17, that this opens the door to Gentile, access to this justification. It's just not Old Testament, not just Abraham, but now in the church age, Gentiles have an assuring part in it, and there's a purpose for them as well. And the fourth part is this example, and it's an example of faith, 18 through 25, and we're looking at the passage 18 through 21, where he lays out the nature of faith. And particularly in the context, the nature of Abraham's faith. But then when you get to verse 24, it's not just for Abraham. In other words, he's not just laying out a historical case here. But in verse 24, Abraham is given in Scripture, not because Abraham is anything special. He's no different than anyone else. But because down the way, down the road, God had us in mind, and that's what 24 is. So this example, there's elements of it that we can learn from today in the 21st century. So let's take a look further at the nature of faith. We focused a little bit on the first phrase, in hope against hope. So we defined hope as not what? It's not just a... Not just a wish or not just a desire. We use the word hope in that way. You know, I hope something happens. I hope for this outcome. I have no idea whether it's going to happen or not. That's why we use the word hope. But biblical hope, and I gave you several scriptures that indicate that it's it's a confidence. It's a an assurance. So biblical hope has a basis for that hope. And when he says, in hope, that looks to God. In other words, there's no earthly reason to have this hope except that God has made some promises. And in fact, it's against all circumstances. It's against human hope. That looks at the circumstances of man. So it's 
everything that you look at around you is is saying, no, this, there's no way. There's no way this could come out. So it's in hope because God has given assurance. And it's in that, and he's already developed the idea of promise that we've already looked at. So in hope, he believed. And the rest of the passage through 21 is going to give us the nature of this believing. In other words, what is this believing like? So the nature of faith. Last time, we we just added a graphic to the slide I gave you last time. Paul had faith. So it's not an issue of not having faith or not having enough faith. Everyone has faith. That's part of who we are. Gave you the illustration that uh, we exercise faith every moment. You're sitting in a chair right now because you trust that that chair is going to hold you up. I use the illustration of taking a trip, and you trust not only your ability to drive, but all of the components that make up a car, etc. So all have faith. Romans 12.3 says God has apportioned faith to all. Now it's in the context of believers, but I think in general everyone has faith. So everyone exercises faith all the time. So it's not a matter of the amount of faith, even though in Scripture it speaks of great faith or very little faith or no faith. But that's not the real issue. It can be viewed from that perspective, but that's not the main issue in terms of faith. The issue is the content of that faith and also the object that that faith is being placed on. That distinguishes it from biblical faith and just normal human experience of faith. But every unbeliever is exercising faith primarily in himself and whatever things around him that he trusts in to sustain or whatever. He eats a meal trusting that his wife has not put poison in it. He does all of the activities of life. He goes to work trusting that he will get paid. So his faith and his trust is in the reliability of the company that he works for, right? His trust is in his wife that she cares for him. So the issue is not the amount. The issue is where is that faith? And the unbeliever constantly, every day, every moment, is putting faith somewhere in something and usually in themselves. We looked at the terms, and there's a noun form, pistis, and also a verb form. And I mentioned that, like most Greek words, you have a noun form and you have a verb, and usually they're the same. It's just a slight difference in spelling or form, uh, whether it's verb or whether it's a noun. And that's what you do when you study Greek. You study the differences of these different forms. In English, it takes two different words... But in English, we sometimes think of them differently. But in the Greek text, when you find the word, whether it's a noun or a a verb, it's the identical idea. So there's not a distinction between the noun and the verb. It's just the the context of how it's being used. So when we say faith, it's pistis. When we say to believe, it's the same word except in the verb form, pistule. Make sense? So the idea is the same, so I put the the verses together. Sometimes it's in a verb form, and sometimes the word occurs in both forms in the same verse, verb and noun. But the concept and the idea is the same, whether it's an action or whether it's a noun form. So those are the terms we looked at last time. And real quickly, just to catch up some of you that weren't here, very, very important, we looked at passages like, Matthew 8.10, where Jesus admires the faith of the centurion. And he makes a comment that he hasn't seen faith like that anywhere. In other words, someone that doesn't have a biblical background, somebody that doesn't have the Old Testament law, who doesn't have all of the history that the Jewish people had, here's an individual that is exercising great faith. So it's admired, and there's other passages as well. It's commended by Paul or faith. Paul gives several examples of the church at Ephesus. I didn't include it, but the Romans themselves in verse 8, the Thessalonians in two passages, he talks about how their faith is being proclaimed throughout the empire, that basically all are recognizing it 
as a priority. In other words, this is a characteristic that should be evident in believers, and he commends it and is thankful that uh, people are recognizing this difference in the believer. And today we can apply that by thinking in terms of, are we known for trusting God? Is that how people see us? Paul commends it. It also shows that it's a high priority. In other words, Hebrews 11.6, you cannot please God without faith. So no matter what you do, if faith is not an element of it, then no matter what you do, it's not pleasing to God. Then the alternative, the Romans 14.23, anything that is not of faith is what? Sin. Sin. So it's even not just pleasing God, but it's the negative aspect as well. So it's a high priority. And there's several passages we could use, but Mark 9, 23 through 24, kind of shows the potential of exercising faith. Nothing is impossible if faith is exercised in its God's will, obviously. And it's the essence of life. We looked at a couple of passages. We are to live by faith. This is how we live, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And we live a life in the flesh, Galatians 2.20, by faith in in Christ. So very important. I also mentioned there are a few passages in the 486 usages of the noun and the verb. And by the way, I looked up every one of them and came up with a word study that 10 font, 13 pages worth. And Linda Would it already done socks off? It knocked my socks off, yeah. A handful of those passages refer to the believer as a believer. In other words, this is the identifying characteristic of the Christian, identified as believers. It speaks of the household of faith. In other words, the church is described as the household of faith in one passage. So we are identified as the people that believe, but it's not this nebulous, we'll look at that in a moment, this indescribable, is that the right word, idea, but it is clearly defined, I think, in Scripture. Yes, New Testament. Sorry about that. Just the Greek word. Yeah, that doesn't include all the words in the Old Testament as well. Good point. So it's the essence of the Christian life, and we have examples where Paul uses and refers to others as examples of faith, And the idea is that Timothy is to be an example of faith in those that he ministers to in 2 Timothy 3.10, 1 Timothy 4.12. And again, that's the way that we should be characterized. People that are trusting in God as opposed to trusting in our own performance. So that's the importance of it. And by the way, all of those passages have either the noun or the verb and sometimes both. So, so that he might become a father, verse 18, uh, he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, and now we have what was spoken to Abraham, the basis of his faith, and that leads us to the first two principles, one of them we looked at last time, so shall your descendants be. Not only is it spoken, it was spoken to Abraham. I don't know how he heard it, maybe audibly, maybe somehow in his mind. God imprinted that idea. And now, because it's in the the 66 books in the book of Genesis, it's not only spoken, but for us, it is what? It is written. It is written, so it has been spoken in the past, and now... For us, it is written, and he quotes out of uh, the Genesis passage that we looked at. So shall your descendants be. That's Genesis, what is it, uh, 15. That's part of the covenant. And by the way, he quotes out of the covenant, even though he refers to it as a promise. So shall your descendants be. So we looked at the first principle on your outline sheet there, or element of biblical faith. It has an idea or a vision of an outcome that uh, has its source in God. So I call it a supernatural vision. It's a hope against hope. In other words, there's nothing natural in the natural realm that indicates that such an outcome is even conceivable 
or possible. So it goes beyond the natural realm, and it has to be something that comes from God himself. A supernatural thought or idea or outcome, I call it a supernatural vision, and we looked at 2 Corinthians 5, 7, and I think we looked at Hebrews 11, 13, 22, and 39. Did we look at those last time? Let me read them real quick. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, we don't evaluate things by the external, visible circumstances. In fact, those circumstances may be against hope. But we walk by faith, in other words, trusting something beyond the natural circumstance. Or the Hebrews 11, 13, referring to all of these people that he listed that live by faith. He said, all these died in faith. In other words, they died trusting in what God had said. And then he goes on, without receiving the promises. But having seen them, and that's why I put it here, in other words, they had an idea or a vision in their minds of what God was going to do, and that thing that God had promised went beyond even the people that he promised it to. So having seen them, in other words, they had a mental picture of it, and having welcomed them from a distance... And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. In other words, this is not our home. We have a different home. It's with God himself. It's supernatural. So the idea of a supernatural vision that even those that were given promises and didn't even receive them. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. He's basing that on the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant spells out that they will be in exile in chapter 15 and even gives the time frame. And Joseph, not knowing how it's going to come about, he knew that they were going to leave Egypt. He knew there was going to be an exodus. I mean, he didn't see the waters parting of the Red Sea. He didn't see all of that. That was years in the future. But he, as the text says, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. So he didn't see the outcome of the promise. But he gave instructions in an act of faith, take my bones, set them aside, take them with you when you guys leave. Make sense? That's faith. So he has a an idea as to how God's going to work this out. Maybe not the details, but somehow God is going to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and back to the land. And in fact, he wanted his bones to be taken with them. And in verse 39, all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Did God fail? No, God's promises sometimes go beyond us. And some of the things that God is working in us, our children may be the beneficiaries, if we are faithful. Or our grandchildren, not that I have any, but I'm including myself with all of you that do. But some of these promises we may not even realize, but yet they live by faith. That's that vision, that bigger idea Even if I don't have the benefit of what God has promised, I know he's going to fulfill it in one way, and I keep trusting him. Okay? So that has supernatural vision. And from the verse, it has to be God's word has to be the source or the content of it. And that's why it's laid out in verse 18 and quoted out of the Genesis passage. It's not nebulous. It's not faith in my faith. Do I have enough faith? Am I trusting enough? No, the issue is, did God make a promise? Did God reveal a principle that I can apply and that I can believe? And does that principle go against everything around me? Maybe it will. And in the case of Abraham, it did. Okay, He didn't even have one son, much less a multitude of nations. 
And that's another example of the promise going way beyond Abraham as well. But he had a, an idea of how it would work out in terms of other nations as well. But it had to start with one promise, and it was not going to be necessarily, at least the nation was not going to be Ishmael's descendants. It was going to be supernatural. So it has God's word as the content of faith. That's the issue. So it's not, well, I hope for this, and I'm going to just believe in it. This is the way I'm going to put God in a box, and this is how God has to answer this prayer. Well, if it's not related to some way that God has promised on a broad basis to believers, because your name's not in Scripture, you're not going to have a specific promise to you individually, but is there a promise that applies to believers in his word such that I can put my trust in it? In other words, this is the the content of that faith. So it's not faith in some idea we come up with. It's faith in something that God has made clear. In other words, we have an idea of what God is going to do, and it's in his word. Therefore, it's the reason we study the word, the reason sometimes we read the word from uh, cover to cover in terms of every year. I encourage people to do that. Read through the scriptures every year. Well, it's in order to give us that foundation. Now, oh, I remember reading a passage all the way back in Leviticus. Leviticus? <laughs> yeah, but there's a principle there that I can uh, trust in for here in the 21st century. And once you have an understanding of God's word, and the, the better you are equipped to uh, study the word and get into the word, the bigger the foundation you have for faith to be able to better understand what God's doing. Mary Lee. But, but, clarify this, because I see people around me who will take a statement of scripture, apply it to themselves, and then be very angry with God because the way they saw that applying to themselves was not, God did not act in that way. So when you have God's word as the basis for your faith, how do you separate that from our own wishful thoughts? We want things to go a particular way, but that is not the way that God chooses to act. Yep. Very good. The only way I can answer that is you need to take the course I'm teaching this semester on hermeneutics and Bible study methods to properly interpret Scripture such that you don't come up with invalid applications. So before we leave, I'll sign you up for the course. (laughs) No, uh, seriously... That's why it's important to interpret Scripture properly because application of Scripture, first of all, has to be based on an accurate and a correct understanding of a passage because you can misapply a passage. Now, application is much broader, but you can still misapply. For example, there are a lot of promises that are made that have more localized application, if you will. For example, nowhere in Scripture God asked anyone to sacrifice their son like he did Abraham. That's a one-time thing, and it was just in terms of Abraham. But there is a principle there that we can apply, but you have to understand the historical context first and what God was doing in Abraham, and now you can draw out a valid principle that applies to us on a broader basis. But this gets into interpretation and then how do you apply principles from Scripture. So you have to understand the passage and some people do misapply and draw invalid applications. Does that make sense, Mary? Yeah, so, so you know, as we've talked through the class about all the alternative competing perspectives on different pieces of scripture, and so we do know of uh, certain denominations that may apply uh, the churches now to Israel because that, and, and other examples. Yeah. And so so what you have to do is, is be sure that you 
know what the promise, to whom the promise was given, yes, or to, to whom something is told, right? Uh, hey, guy was told to go marry a prostitute. Yeah, you know. So that frees me, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, so it's it's making sure that as you look at a promise. That you don't allow, or as you're, as you're looking for hope, you don't allow your fears to lead you into hanging on to promises that were not necessarily given to you. Right. But, or not in the way that you want. We have to be careful of our own interpretation. In yes. Here's the key to application. In the course, I develop it in some detail and give lots of examples, but Application, first and foremost, starts with a proper understanding of the text. In other words, how does this text, what does it mean? What did it mean to the original readers? What did the original author intend? In other words, you understand that, in other words, it's based on a proper interpretation, number one. Now, every passage of Scripture, and by the way, Virtually every passage of scripture is not written to us. It's written to a particular audience. So that now you evaluate how was it understood by that audience and how did Paul or Moses or whoever intend, what is he trying to communicate? Okay, I understand that. The second stage of application in every passage there, you can draw from it timeless universal principles that go beyond the passage. A timeless truth. That makes sense? Let's take the example I just gave of Abraham sacrificing his son. Okay, we understand it. It's just for Abraham. It, it never was given to anybody else. So we understand the historical thing. It was a test of faith. It was the ultimate test for Abraham. Well, the timeless truth there is that son not only was the center of everything that God was doing in Abraham in terms of the promise and the covenant, it was the most important thing. He'd waited all of his life for it. Now he's almost, you know, he's over, he's 100 years old now, pregnant at 99, didn't forget that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this was what was most important to him. So a timeless truth, there may be others, but a timeless truth is God may call upon us to set aside that that is most important to us. If that's what he desires us to do, to accomplish some greater good that he makes clear elsewhere. So you look for a timeless truth that transcends. In other words, this timeless truth was true in Abraham's day. It was true before Abraham's day. It was true after Abraham's day. It was true in the New Testament, and it's true today. That's a timeless, eternal truth. Every passage, including genealogies, you can draw those timeless truths from. And, and the reason they're timeless truths is because they reveal to us who God is, and He's the same. Yes, right. God is the same. Yeah. We had a conversation. It's very apropos. It's on the way here. My dear friend just dropped off her oldest child in college, and she's really struggling. And so I was frantically trying to send her a Bible verse on the way to this class, and. Uh, I thought of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, and I, you know, I know the plans I have, but I hate to send that one because my personal opinion is that's intended to, that's specific to Jeremiah, but and Israel, like, yeah, it's about who God is, not whether it's to Jeremiah or whether it's to us, yeah, but stating something about who God is, yeah, and you might clarify. In other words, this pertained to Israel in this circumstance and to Jeremiah in this time frame, but the principle that is that we can draw from that can apply to us. So and you can consider Philippians for, like, don't be anxious about anything. Right. So I thought, okay, that's that safe to apply <laughs> yeah. to everybody. But, yeah. but, yeah, he was pointing out it's, it's about who God is. Right. Not who we are, whether, because I, I, I tend to get bogged down in right. the details of, well, is this promise for us or is this promise for a specific person? Well, that promise in Philippians was to the church at Philippi. Well, that's true. So then I have this. <laughs> <laughs> it's under anything. <laughs> okay. And you're, you're reading somebody else's mail. Right. 
But because it's inspired, there is that valid principle, and some some statements of Scripture are almost stated as these universal principles that not only applied to the church at Philippi, but that one in particular is easier to see how that is even way beyond the Philippians. And I center Lamentations 3 about being down and out, but yeah. it's great as it's faithfulness and mercies are new each morning. Exactly. And that's the principle. The yeah, the universal truth. Very good. Okay. Romans 10, 8. Let's look these up. I don't think we did last time. Because this is where we ended last time. Romans 10, 8. Somebody's got that one? Got it, Jacob? Second Thessalonians, and I'll have you read 17 as well. Second Thessalonians 2, 13. Somebody want to do that one? Okay. Terry, First Timothy 4, 6. You got that one? What's his name? Dwayne. 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 Jacob, you got Romans 10, 8. 10, 8. But what does it say? What does it say? The word, <laughs> the word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith. The word of faith. In other words, it's based on the word. Skip to verse 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and what's the last hearing word? By the hearing word. by the word of God. In other words, it has to be based on scripture. Second Thessalonians 2.13. Always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by God, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the spirit and belief and true belief in the truth. Okay, through belief in the truth. Their faith is based on the truth. In fact, there's a whole group of scriptures that refer to the faith. In other words, it's referring to being of the faith, looking at a body of truth. In other words, the faith in that context is referring to a whole body of truth. In other words, biblical doctrine or biblical teaching. That is the faith. The the content of what we believe is referred to as the faith in several contexts. I can give you some of those verses because I've got them all categorized on my 13 pages. This might be one of them that's close to that. First uh, Timothy 4, 6, Dwayne. Pointing out these things to the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, Words of the faith. In other words, there's content to faith. To be constantly nourished on the words of faith. And there's a whole group of other verses I could give you as well. These are some examples. Now, beginning in verse 19, the sentence goes all the way to verse 21. And we won't do our usual break it down thing, but let's highlight some things. Let me read it first of all. Without becoming weak. By the way, this is the rest of the description that it looks like we're not going to get done with, but we'll get as far as we can. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, semicolon, yet with respect to the promise of God, in other words, God's the content, the promise, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, so... Faith grows, giving glory to God. I think that's the bottom line. In little words, our faith should always give glory to him. And being fully assured, that's hope, being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. There are several elements on there. And if you look at the outline sheet there, I bring out those elements as we go through the passage. So let's go through them individually. He contemplated his own body. In other words, he knew the circumstances. He knew that, humanly speaking, there's no way that he, about a hundred, that's why I said about a (laughs) hundred, he did not waver in unbelief, but the alternative grew strong. That's the heart of the passage, or at least that portion of it. So first of all, without becoming weak in faith, 
Now, that does not mean that our faith is always perfect or that we always exercise it or we're always walking by faith. And Abraham is one of the prime examples because the whole story of Abraham is the story of God developing faith, Abraham's faith growing. And did Abraham ever fail in faith? Yeah. Yeah, there are several examples. Real quickly, some of the lapses of Abraham's faith. Does anybody remember? Possibly, this one's not clear in Scripture, but potentially, at least some scholars think so. What do you think the first one was? First lapse. One of them is clear. Hmm? He lied that Sarah was his sister. Okay, that's probably, possibly the second one. That's the first clear one. Yeah, he asked Sarah to pretend to be his sister when they had to be... That's another one. That one's later. Okay. The first one, it, it may be, I don't know, he did not leave his family in Ur. Remember the promise says, leave your family. He took Lot. He took his father. He, so some scholars think that that would be the first lapse. That one's not so clear. That's 1131. One you mentioned, he had his wife act like a sister, 12, uh, when the famine came and they had to go to Egypt, 12, 12 through 20. And you also mentioned Ishmael with Hagar. That's a very clear lapse in faith. And God clarifies that and restates the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 17. But in 16, 1 through 6, he takes the advice of his wife. So that means you should never take the advice of your wife, right? (laughs) Valid application? Wrong. Wrong. Okay, very good. One of the things you can apply, though, is is that when you make mistakes, sometimes the results are long-lasting. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, sin has long-lasting effects. Was Abraham totally forgiven, you think? Yes. Yes, but the consequences sometimes linger. Exactly. We're experiencing the long-term effects today. Missionaries in the Middle East see it every day. He does it again. Chapter 20, didn't learn first time, another lapse of faith. So the text is not saying that our faith is always perfect or that it's, you know, constant. And in fact, it grows or should be growing as we, as we learn. But Ray, one of the timeless truths we can bring out of all of that is that when God has made a promise, our Fallenness does not negate yes. the promise that God has made to yes. us in faithfulness. Yes. Yep. It may delay our experience of the blessing of it, but yes, it, it does not negate it. And that's why we are confident in eternal security, for example. Sometimes we'll live in a way that indicates that obviously we don't deserve it, but yet God has a future plan for us. So we ended up with I think you learn more sometimes from your mistakes you than can. you do from doing everything. Yes. Yeah. I think his faith probably deepened in those four things yeah. than probably anything else. Particularly the last one there. Yeah, exactly. And when is Isaac born? What chapter? 21. 21. Reinforcing what you said there. So he's born in 21, and then in 22... His faith is matured to a point that God asks him to sacrifice that son. So you see a progress of faith in Abraham. You see ups and downs. You see lapses. So that's encouraging. This is the Old Testament pattern. So biblical faith has a supernatural vision. That's verse 18. It has God's word as content. That's also in verse 18. And thirdly, does not retreat It continues to move forward. That doesn't mean that it's perfect initially, but it has progress. And some other verses that we could look up, uh, Romans 14, 1. Somebody want to do that one? You were looking for a verse. Why don't you do 14, 1, Linda? Luke 22, 32. Dwayne's got that one. 1 Timothy 6, 21. Connie. Romans 14, 1, Linda? Now, except the one who was speaking faith. But except not, the one, you read it loud, who is weak in faith. Except the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. The point being is what? new believers or sometimes older believers are weak. In other words, they're not consistent in the exercise of trusting God based on what he has said. They don't 
look at his word and have an idea of how God's going to work in a circumstance. So what, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinion? Yeah, it's speaking to a more mature believer. In other words... Like, I would accept someone who's weak in faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's for the Romans to accept someone who's weak in faith. Yeah, and if you read but the whole passage, you know, don't be a stumbling block. Don't be in the way of them developing oh, faith. One who is okay, yeah. I get it. Yeah. And who's oh, got... I see. Yeah. Yep. Who's got Luke 22? Dwayne? Uh, this is Jesus speaking to Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You want to Wow. He's in danger of his faith failing, but Jesus has prayed for him. So there can be lapses. He recovers. Abraham recovered. Peter recovered. So we don't retreat and deny the faith, even though there's passages that in some cases it seems that that is the case. But in general, it does not retreat, so you move, you progress, the idea. That's verse 19. First Timothy 6, 21. It says in 20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and contradictions of what is false and knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Some have strayed. Okay? So it does not exclude setbacks. And that's why I give you the example of Abraham, because that's Paul's example. But it doesn't ultimately retreat. It moves forward. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. What was the situation with his body? He's, He's almost a hundred, probably one. not very fertile. And now as good as dead, as far as a child since he was about 100 years old. And not only that, he has another strike against him, the deadness of Sarah's womb. She had never born a child. She was barren. And now she is as good as dead as well. But what do we have? We have the circumstances that, if you read Hebrews 11, God gives a promise to Noah that includes rain that he's never seen before, probably depending on how you interpret a few passages in the early chapters of Genesis. So, no rain. So circumstances may go totally against what God has promised or beyond any experience that you might have. Noah's a good example. Joshua and Caleb. Remember the ten spies? Ten spies says, the land is full of giants. And the grasshoppers are as big as men. We can't conquer the land. Well... Humanly speaking, I think the armies of the Canaanites were well-established. They had fortified cities that were impregnant. All of the circumstances, everything surrounding what God had promised, there's just no way. There's no way. Except Joshua and Caleb, what did they do? They exercised faith that God could overcome those circumstances. Gideon, tiny army, God says, reduce the army. And he separated... The army, what was it, 300 men to fight this huge international force, big army. But Gideon believed and did what God said. Faith, circumstances, there's no way this army's going to defeat this huge military force. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, doesn't fire burn the skin and the body? Well, they trusted that God would preserve them. Circumstances, no way. In fact, if you don't believe it, try it. Stephen in the New Testament, if you want an example, Stephen is stoned, and in the midst of it, he asks God that he forgive those that are stoning him. Because what? He had a vision of what God was doing. He knew he was going to be martyred, and God gave him assurance. And these are just a few examples. You could find lots more. So faith doesn't make sense. Oh, I kind of like that on that on the Internet. It makes miracles and sometimes God asks us to trust him apart from the circumstances. So faith looks beyond circumstances. That's what Abraham did in the passage. So number one, it has a supernatural idea or vision of how God's going to work. And it's based on what God has said, God's word as its content. 
It does not retreat. It may have lapses. It may have ups and downs, but it doesn't ultimately retreat. It continues to progress, and it looks beyond the circumstances. And for the sake of time, well, let's look it up. Let's read the Hebrews passage, and I think I'll read it just for the sake of time. Remember, this is a chapter of faith. Actually, I gave you most of these. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen. Rain had never been seen. There had never been a flood. In reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. No flood had ever happened. Well, why am I going to build this boat on dry land? Wow. By which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteous, which is according to faith. Then verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going because he had an idea that God was going to bless him when he left. In fact, God promised that. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as a foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. So we could read on, and we've already read the passage where many of the promises that were made were not fulfilled. It looks beyond the circumstances. And then verse 20, yet with respect to the promise of God, there's the heart of it, there's the content, there's God's word. He did not waver in unbelief, and just to keep you awake here, Faith is like Wi-Fi. It's invisible, but it has the power to connect you to what you need. Kind of a cute little thing here. We'll look next time at biblical faith is victorious over doubt. And that kind of goes back to the not retreating part, but there's two elements in there kind of emphasizing, keep going at it, because there will be victory over doubt. That's... For 20, and we'll see examples of it in Matthew 21, and verse 21, and James 1, 6. Is it true, like, if you want, if you have enough faith, better question is, do you believe the promises? Yeah, far better, yeah. In fact, where is my faith is the question. In other words, do I have enough? Well, it's not a matter of the amount, it's where do I have my faith? Is it based on a particular promise or principle that is in God's word. And then we're going to see another element at the end. Is it in the right object, in the right place? And that's on your outline sheet already. Just a closing thought. Biblical faith is not blind. Some people think that it's blind faith or nebulous or undefined, but it's based on God's word. And next week, we'll also see that it grows in time. we see that it glorifies God, and oftentimes through testing or difficulty. And then we'll see it has God as its object. That's kind of the climax of the whole study. So eight elements of biblical faith. Who wants to close for us? Kind of. Father, we thank you for this faith Amen. 